Let us pray. Father, we believe all Holy Scripture is written for our learning. And so we pray by your Holy Spirit now that we would so hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this, your Holy Word, that we would be changed more and more to be like Jesus Christ for the sake of this world. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. I was going to begin a sermon series on Jonah today, but Jonah is being kicked back a week. Because as I came home from our prayer conference the last two days, just at the very end, there was the news of the Allen Outlet Mall. My family was, like yours, I'm sure, sad, shocked. And to be honest, scared. As my phone blew up with people in the congregation and staff and friends, all sharing that sentiment because it's so close. The question that immediately came to mind was how do we pray, having come out of a prayer conference, how do we pray in the face of such a crisis? How do we pray? in moments like this faithfully? Well, the answer is we pray that we can see, that the Lord would show us how to see what he's doing in this moment, to see who he is in this moment. A number of years ago, we had a smoke detector going off in the house. You know those, that terrible thing that happens to you when they, it's the battery or something, it's beeping and it drives you crazy and it took a little while to locate that it was the smoke detector at the top of our stairs. So went up there and grabbed the stick and hit the button, kept beeping. When I got the ladder, changed the batteries, kept beeping. Bad batteries, when I got more batteries, changed those batteries, still beeping. I tore the sucker off the ceiling (laughs) and now the ceiling's beeping. I went and grabbed the main power for the house. Ceiling is still beeping. I called the electrician. He couldn't come that day but had no idea how the ceiling could be beeping. I was about to grab my prayer book for an exorcism when I saw a little box on the wall that I hadn't noticed before, I leaned in, I looked at this box, and I realized it was a carbon monoxide detector that I didn't install. It was there when we bought the house, and the light for the battery dying was going off. It wasn't the ceiling beeping, it was the carbon monoxide detector beeping. I was panicked, and I was worried, and I was freaking out and wasted hours because of something that I could not see right before my eyes. I was put into a terrible, terrible place because I was missing what was right in front of me. I just couldn't see it. And so it is with us. I want you to hear these words from 
Exodus chapter 14, if you want to turn there in your Bibles or the Pew Bibles or your iPhones, Exodus 14, this is a moment when Israel is unable to see what God is really doing in a critical moment of crisis. Exodus chapter 14, beginning of verse 10. Then Pharaoh drew near, and the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Israel sees the army, sees the sea, but they don't see the Lord who brought them to that moment. Verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. But the Lord has brought them here. Moses says in verse 13, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. See, friends, when crisis hits in our own personal lives, in our families, in our communities, in our world, how do we pray? We pray to the Lord that we could see, could see. See what? Well, in this text at least, we're told that when crisis comes, we need to pray that we could see God's power. God's mighty power, yet in that moment of crisis, ready to be brought to bear. That we would see the Lord's power and we pray that we would see the Lord's part for us. What is our role? How are we to participate, not be passive? There is a role for each and every one of us in these moments. But not only are we to pray that we would see the Lord's power, 
and the Lord's part for us, but also that we would see the Lord's purpose, his ultimate purposes being brought to bear. Yes, even in the hardest moments of crisis. Pray. When crisis comes, we pray first to see God's power. Verse 14. Moses says, the Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. It's the promise that God is not only with his people, but he's with them as a warrior God. He's gonna fight for them. This is the picture we see again and again in scripture. This is who he is. We say it in our Eucharistic service every Sunday, what we call the Sanctus, holy, 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 Lord God of power and might. The Lord God Sabaoth, power and might. You know, I actually like the older version better in the King James or in the old prayer book. Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts. It's a better word than just power because what hosts are we talking about? He's the Lord God of what hosts? He's the Lord God of the hosts of the angel armies. This is the God who rides into battle with his warrior angels to protect those he calls, those he loves. That he comes to protect and fight for us because we cannot fight for ourselves. God is consistently seen as a warrior in the Bible, not just in the Old Testament, in the New Testament as well. Last week, we looked at Jesus saying, I'm the good shepherd. His rod and his staff, they protect us. That rod of the shepherd, they will fight back the wolf. We'll even lay down his own body and do battle with the wolf, putting himself between the wolf and the sheep, our warrior king. But even when we describe the ministry of the Holy Spirit, when Jesus says the Holy Spirit will come, the third person of the Holy Trinity coming to dwell in you, he uses a word. He says the paraclete. And paraclete, yes, can be advocate, helper, guide, all those. But really, paraclete is a militaristic term. A paraclete was a very specific person in your military life. The Romans knew all about paracletes. It's the reason the Roman legions were so successful. Because the paraclete is the person you're paired with in battle. The paraclete is the one who will fight on that side while I fight on this side. Literally, the person who's got your back. This is why the Roman legions were so effective, because they didn't just go in wildly like the savages on their own. They went in as a unit, and there was always someone at their back guarding both sides. Literally, God has your back protecting you, fighting for you to keep you safe. The ministry of the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, the warrior God who fights for us. Moses is trying to make clear that in these moments of crisis, what we're being reminded of is just how much we contrast with God's power. A moment of crisis is a moment when we recognize how powerless we are. 
We run around pretending and believing that we've got all kinds of power and control, and then a moment of crisis comes in, and by definition in that moment, it is out of control, it is out of our hands, and we feel that power just slip through our fingers. And Moses is saying to us, yes, in this moment, you need to understand your role and God's role. God will fight for you. God has the power. You need to stay silent. Just watch. Watch. See, our lives as disciples is constantly about learning just how powerless we truly are, how dependent we are on our God to protect and comfort and guide and, yes, fight for us to be our paraclete. John 15, 5, Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. Psalm 127, verse 1 Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders build in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen watch in vain. And sometimes it takes a crisis to remind us. A personal crisis, a crisis in our families, in our community, in our world. It takes a crisis to remind us of just how much we need God. How much we are dependent upon his power. These moments when we're stuck between an army and a sea. When it seems impossible. I mean, listen to verse nine. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and all Pharaoh's chariots and all Pharaoh's horsemen and all his army and overtook them and encamped by the sea. This is an impossible situation. And it teaches us to pray, Lord, help me see your power. C.S. Lewis would refer to this kind of moment as a severe mercy. For he says, pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. St. Paul understood this. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, God says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. In a crisis, we pray to see. Lord, help me not just see my powerlessness. Let me see your power. But in a crisis also, we pray to see God's part for us to see what our participation is to be, to ask God, what are we to do? What is our role? I love that verse 14 is immediately followed by verse 15. Verse 14, right? The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. Verse 15, the Lord says to Moses, tell the people of Israel to go forward. And you want to say, which is it? Am I supposed to just stand back and watch? Or am I supposed to move forward? And the answer is yes. 
God won't leave us at verse 14 and remain in some kind of passive state. Oh, Lord, show me your power, and I'm just going to step back and do nothing. Jesus, take the wheel. No, God is fighting for us. Lord, let me see it. But then to ask, and now what are you calling me to do? They go hand in hand. We often struggle with this seeming dichotomy. It's a false dichotomy. It's not true. There's no real division between the idea of God's sovereign action and our human responsibility. I said this at the prayer conference yesterday, but I'll say it again, at least with a better illustration. Because we often struggle. We think, okay, if God is sovereign... And we take that to far too of an extreme and just go, therefore, I don't need to do anything. Well, that's not a healthy way to live your life, nor is the alternative, which says, it's all up to me. Both of these extreme ends become truly practical heresy. Instead, as Charles Spurgeon tells us, if in one place in scripture, God says, He is totally sovereign over every action. And if another place of scripture, he says that human beings are responsible for their actions, then these two bits of scripture don't have to be reconciled. They're friends. The fact that we can't hold them together is not an indictment against scripture's consistency, but our inability to hold the mystery of God together. This is truly the mystery of God. Let me put it this way. Here's the illustration. Before our kids started heading off to college, I knew I had a very important responsibility to make sure that we watched together some of the great films of history. Because you can't send a kid off to college and have not watched certain great films. We all wrote a list. We had about 40 films. I said, we've got to watch these movies together. And of all these films, two of my favorite are The Godfather and Back to the Future. Both stellar masterpieces. But these movies actually contain extreme versions of these two worldviews, right? The sort of fatalistic worldview that everything's just taken care of and I've got no action at all. And then this other worldview that says it's all up to you. So the Godfather, right? Michael Corleone, the son of the mob boss, spends his entire life determined not to become his father. He is not going to be a mob boss. He's determined to do it. And by the end of The Godfather, he has become the mob boss. Sorry if I spoiled that for you, but you've had a lot of time to watch The Godfather. I mean, at the end of it, Vito Corleone, the father, like, I never wanted this for you. Like, it's just, he never wanted it, but it was like this fatalistic, it's just going to happen, right? That's an extreme view. It's just is going to happen. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. But then there's Back to the Future, equally problematic on the other extreme, where Dr. Emmett Brown will say to Marty McFly, your future is what you make of it, so make it a good one. That's a terrible Christopher Lloyd impression. But the point is, both of these worldviews are dead wrong. If we actually believed that we lived in a fatalistic universe where everything was totally decided and I had no responsibility for my actions, I wouldn't get out of bed in the morning because why bother? Total passive. But on the other extreme, if I believed that everything was up to me, I also wouldn't get out of bed in the morning or leave my house because I'd be terrified that I'd ruin my life in the first five minutes. 
The truth is scripture holds together the fact that God is sovereign over his world. There are no surprises. He is always acting. And yet we are called to enter into action. We are called to work and live under his call and faithfulness within his sovereign will. He fights for us. And he says, go forward. The two go hand in hand. The question is, are we asking him, Lord, what am I called to do in this moment? You fight for me. And what are you calling me to do? It was that moment in Acts chapter one, after Jesus' ascension, right? So Jesus just told the disciples this incredible calling. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then he ascends in glory and he goes up and the disciples are standing there with their mouths hanging open, looking at the clouds. And an angel says to them, Men of Galilee, what are you doing with your mouths hanging open? No, that's my translation. What he says is, men of Galilee, why do you stand staring at the sky? This same Jesus who ascended before you will come again. In other words, get to work. You're called to move. Yes, all the glory and the power is in his hands. Hallelujah. Now get to work. Move, go forward. God, when he calls us in these moments of crisis, will rarely call us to some kind of passive stasis. There's nothing to do. There's always going to be something. Nor is he going to call us to some kind of sprint, like it's all up to us. But he's going to give us a first step. He's going to give us one thing. What can, what's that one step? That one step forward. How can I respond to this crisis, how am I being called just one step at a time? Micah 6, 8, you know, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? But to seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Pray that prayer and then say, Lord, what's the next step? Colossians 3, 23, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Pray that scripture and then say, so Lord, what's the next step? How am I to go forward? We pray that we could see, see his power and see his part for us. And finally, that when crisis comes, we pray that we could see his purpose, his ultimate purposes being worked out. You know, it's interesting when crises happen, some people are, are quick to try and analyze the crisis and try to analyze what God might be doing in that and giving sort of these directions on, well, God's clearly doing this or doing that. And a lot of times you want to say, I, I don't really know exactly what God is doing in this moment, in this moment, but I know what his ultimate purposes are. I know what, where it's all heading towards. I know that this moment is caught up in the bigger salvation story that is always being brought to the foot of the cross, is always being brought to submission to Christ, that God is always in the business of working at his salvation. Look at verse 18. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. You want to say, whoa, hold on a second. The Egyptians shall know? The, the ones that are attacking the enemy in this moment? God doesn't speak a word of judgment on them or condemnation for 
As John 3.17 says, God did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Even the Egyptians. That through this moment, it's not just Israel that will be saved. Ultimately, it's for the sake of Egypt being brought under the lordship of the king of kings and the lord of lords. The whole world to be saved, even the aggressors. I mean, talk to a Coptic Christian today. The Coptic church, the church of Egypt, who for 2,000 years have been beat up by pagans around them, by Islam and other religions all around them, and yet have stayed true to the word of Christ. The Egyptians, the fulfillment of this word in Exodus 14, that the Egyptians would know that I am the Lord. And they do. This is what God's purpose is always, redemptive. Always about bringing people into alignment with him and his kingdom. And let me be clear though, I, I gotta be very clear and you, you're not surprised because I talk about this a lot, but this does not mean it's a promise that you won't get harmed. What God is not promising is, oh, I'm gonna fight for you and everything's gonna be just perfect. Actually, it could be a big mess for a long time and it could continue to be painful, but God is ultimately bringing about his purposes. God's plan of salvation for you and for the whole of the world continues in it. We will be harmed. Very often we will feel those slings and arrows. But God is working out his purposes. I said this on Wednesday night at Travis's ordination to the priesthood. I'll say it again. You've heard me say it before that Romans 8.28 is unfortunately so often cited in moments of crisis. Oh, you're having a crisis. God causes all things to work together for the good. And they leave it there. They just like pluck Romans 8.28 out and they just like lay it in front of you and go, so it's gonna be okay. And you say, what are you talking about? All this crisis, all things work together for the good. You need to keep reading. You can never take Romans 8.28 out of context from Romans 8.29. Romans 8, 28, what is the good? All things, even this terrible crisis you're going through in your family, in your community, in your world, whatever the crisis may be, that thing can be worked together for the good for those who love God or are called according to his purpose, for those who he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the first among many brothers. The good that is promised to come out of all things, even the worst crisis, the good is becoming like Jesus. The good is Christ-likeness. God taking every moment of your life, the good, the bad, and yes, the ugly, and the awful, and the horrific, and using it to form you more and more into the image of his son. It means that whatever this crisis may be, it may be sometimes in your life the best formation to look more like the man of sorrows, the man of suffering, the man who was spat upon and beaten and misunderstood and hated. If Christ-likeness is the goal, then this moment of crisis isn't some kind of failure on God's part. This moment of crisis may, in fact, even be our formation. Matthew 16, verse 24. Jesus says, whoever would come after me, let him, take, let him deny self, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That's the path of Christ's likeness. You know, I, I talk about this a lot, I know, so I think my, my staff finally 
in mercy to me, changed a bunch of the artwork over in the ministry center offices because they heard me complain about this oftentimes. And I, I know I'm, I'm a complainer, but um, I'm not a big fan of a lot of Christian ease art that gets plucked out, you know, put on a nice little airbrushed, weathered plaque, you know, little verse. Because a lot of times they sort of stand out there without any context. And so I'll be walking to my office having met with someone whose marriage is falling apart or someone who just lost a child or someone who's going through a horrendous crisis. And then I'll walk down the hall and there'll be like this little sign from Hobby Lobby that says, if God leads you to it, he'll lead you through it. And I'll say, yes, I I agree, but keep going. Like if he leads you to it, he'll lead you through it. And it may mean nails in your hands and feet and a spear in your side. Like let's be clear how he might get you through it. Or or my favorite, um, God will never, the will of God will never take you where the grace of God will not protect you. And I'll say, amen, hallelujah, I agree, but keep going with that. What, what does that mean? The will of God will never take you where the grace of God will not protect you. It may be that you're in a box in the earth and your protection is your day of resurrection. This is what we're promised in scripture. It's why if ever I opened up a Christian t-shirt company, they'd be more like quoting the American Chinese theologian, Bruce Lee, who once said, do not pray for an easy life. Pray for the strength to endure a difficult one. I'd wear that on a t-shirt. Or, or like the meme you've seen around where you know, they got pictures of like the pictures of Christians being dragged off to the Colosseum to be thrown to the lions. And then on top of it, we'll say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Like I would wear that shirt every day. <laughs> or maybe just Romans 16, 33. Jesus says, in this world you love trouble, but fear not, I have overcome the world. In every crisis, God is glorified primarily because his purpose is to form you and I and this world into the image of his son. And we pray that we could see that. You know, I close with this story and I, I almost regret sharing it because it really is nowhere near the kind of crisis that people in our community are facing with, with the Allen Outlet Mall tragedy. But I share it because we're all suffering with different kinds of tragedies and crises in our lives, right? So mine was a little minor one, perhaps, by estimation, but it was early in my Christian life. I was 17 years old. I had just become a Christian. Three months, I was a Christian. I'm a brand new believer, atheist, become believer. I love Jesus. I'm totally into this. And I had surgery, and the surgeon ended up scratching and tearing my throat and including my vocal cords. And many of you know, I was a professional stage actor and singer as a child through into my 20s. And the surgeon said, you can't sing for three months. And we don't even know after three months what that's gonna look like. You can't sing, you can barely talk above a whisper for the next three months. And I was just mortified. I'm thinking my career's over. I mean, I, had, I was in a show, I had to quit Guys and Dolls. It was gonna be amazing. I mean, it was awful. And I'm crying out to God as a brand new Christian going, what, what gives? Like, I just gave my life to you and you let this crisis you're ruining my life. Well, at the same time, our pastor came to me and said, hey, would you like to go with the youth and be one of the like, junior leaders on the youth retreat? 
And for the first time in my life, I actually had time available because I was three months on sabbatical. And so I said, okay, I've got nothing else to do. And I went on the youth retreat and I kind of loved working with the kids and working in ministry. And while I was there, a bunch of leaders were praying and they said, Paul, we really think the Lord's calling you to be like the youth leader. And I'm like, I'm three months along. They're breaking all the rules. But they were like, I think the Lord's doing this. And I said, oh, okay. And I said, yes. And I came home and started leading the youth group. And three months later, I got a doctor's bill of health that said, your voice is fine. But it was too late. I was hooked in the church. I was hooked. I never really fully gave my heart back to theater. God had hooked me into his church through this crisis. And it changed my life. How do we pray when crisis comes? We pray that we could see. That we could see God's power in the midst of our powerlessness and depend upon it. Pray that we could see our part, God's role for us. What are you calling me to do? I will fight for you and you go forward. And that we could see his ultimate purposes, his salvation, Christ-likeness being born in this world, in you, in your family, in our community, in this world, and yes, even with the Egyptians. Lord, in this crisis, in every crisis, Lord, teach us to pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.